Once, Chuangzhu dreamt he was a butterfly fluttering about joyfully just as a butterfly would. He followed his whims exactly as he liked and knew nothing about Chuangzhu. Suddenly, he awoke, and there he was, the startled Zhuangzhu in the flesh. He did not know if Zhuangzhu had been dreaming he was a butterfly, or if a butterfly was now dreaming it was Zhu. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and maybe joining me today is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, Nathan. And maybe you're not even here. Right? Maybe I am dreaming this whole thing, or yeah. maybe the whole thing is just some kind of giant make-believe fantasy world. Yeah, maybe all of existence is a kind of an, an illusion, a kind of simulacrum. And you know what I was thinking about? If you look to your right, not the listener, obviously, you can look wherever you want. <laughs> but Lee, if you look to your right, then of course you see the uncover up mascots. Right, the shrimp. Yeah, my, my small shrimp farm. Now, they spend their lives happily shrimping away and, and eating and cleaning the tank and, and making more shrimplings and, and going about their day. They have no idea that they live in an artificial environment. They have no idea that that, that world is... It's an artifice. It, it, isn't, it isn't genuine. It isn't natural. My question is, are we perhaps like those shrimp? Is this entire world that we're in, is the entire universe that we're in, nothing more than the equivalent of a little shrimp tank somewhere? You know, going back thousands of years, this has been a question in religious theologies and philosophies. But I think also we're going to tackle next episode the question that has been uh, gaining traction in the world of conspiracy theories, which is, is the universe a holographic simulation? Yeah, like, basically, are we living in a giant computer game? Yeah, like the Matrix, right? Yeah. yeah, so we are going to hit that. But then as often happens, when we try to research into a conspiracy, we realize, wait a second, we got to back ourselves up. And we have to back ourselves up thousands of years, because as it turns out, there is a long, rich human t tradition of questioning whether we're in the real world or not. Yeah. So what we'll do today then is we'll just sort of look, we'll do like a survey of some of the philosophers and some of the philosophies and some of the ideas which have made the claim that, no, this place isn't real. Yeah, okay. I think what we're trying to do here is just show a kind of representative um, set of examples that this question has been thought about for a very long time. It's actually not new with this philosophy, with this new conspiracy theory. And we're just going to pick up some themes, I think, that are helpful in also understanding the question when we tackle it in its more modern guise in the next episode. Yeah, the examples that we're using are not exhaustive. They are not all of the examples of humans questioning our reality. And also, because we're looking at, you know, five or six of them, we're not going to go into great in-depth detail into any of them. It's just sort of an introduction. Okay, an introduction to, to unreality. Okay, that's the plan. That's the plan. Let, let's see if we can stick to it and keep uh, it under five episodes. We'll see. All right. <laughs> All right. You're going to start us off, aren't you? Oh, you're going to start us off. Chronologically. I'm starting us off. Chronologically, well, as I said, this idea that we're not living in the really real world has been a, a, an idea in, say, Hindu uh, religious traditions, which are vast and, and really represent, um, you know, a kind of a, an, a, a large group of traditions that, that, that share some similarities. They're quite old. They're older than uh, Buddhism, Christianity, um, to some extent Judaism. Um, and there was a central concept in both Hinduism and Buddhism that the world is essentially an illusion. That uh, Now, what is the nature of this illusion varies, but this is not where it's really real. The really real comes in some kind of union with the divine or in an orthodox Buddhist sense in the realization of the true nature of reality, which is different from its appearances. Okay, so what does that mean? I think the basic idea is that you've probably noticed on this this place that we are, there's a lot of loss. Yeah. There is a lot of decay. Mm -hmm. That nothing lasts for very long, that we don't last for very long, 
that anything that we try to make, we ultimately sort of fail at. There's an absurdity to this place. No matter how hard we work, everything seems to become undone. The people that we love eventually disappear into nothingness, ultimately. Spoiler alert, we're going to disappear into nothingness at some point. And that's, that's Speak pretty Speak for yourself there. I'm going to disappear into nothingness <laughs> at some point. And that, there's like two really difficult things to understand about existence. One is that we exist, and two is that then we stop existing. Yeah. And those are both baffling. Yep. Yep. And, and so I can totally understand why even thousands of years ago, humans would have been going through this and being like, what is it with this place? Yeah. I think you, you really make a strong case for the psychological drive to try and figure out if there isn't maybe something more to it. I think, though, also to give these theories its due, I think it's helpful in philosophy we talk about a distinction between appearance, how things appear at first blush, and essence, how things really are underneath. Now, when I try and teach this to undergraduate students, I give the example of getting suckered into buying a product that turns out to be a piece of crap, where... The appearance of the product is, oh, this is great, and it will make me very happy. And then you buy it, and you discover its true nature is, is that it's not great, and it didn't make you happy, and it fell apart, and it's just a piece of landfill. Mm-hmm. Now, that experience of the difference between how things first appear to us and how they actually are in further investigation or, or, or more developed relationship with things is not unique to us. That is something that any inquiring mind encounters. And I think the idea that the world as we see it, there is just simply more to it, has a lot of, if, if we just take it in this naive sense, has a lot of credence. Like we do experience all the time that there is something more to the things that we just see at the level of its appearance when we investigate them. And not only that, but we're always being fooled by our senses. Like right. if, if you're out in the desert and it's super hot and you're super thirsty... Of course, you're, you're going to see mirages, which are going to be kind of like a weird, flickering, reflective image off in the distance that looks kind of like water. Mm. And then you'll go running up to it and it'll disappear. Yep. And at that point, you'll think, huh, what is it with this place? Right. <laughs> what is the deal with this lousy place? Well, one philosopher that you and I both know the works of quite well, and I think we both taught his, his stuff... Um, certainly is very influential in the Western philosophical canon, uh, and that's Plato. And he has this, and I feel like we've even talked about it on the uncover-up, he has this allegory in one of his, maybe the most famous work of his, and he's probably one of, if not the most famous philosopher in the Western canon. I mean, sometimes he's referred to just as the philosopher. The philosopher, exactly. He's OG. Uh, And... um, in the Republic, there is the, a small section covers, you know, a couple of pages, three pages or so, uh, called the Allegory of the Cave. And it's an allegory about coming to this realization that I think you and I have both been talking about, about that there is a, a really real beyond our immediate understanding of the world. And despite the fact that this is probably one of the most important stories, certainly in the Western tradition, but I would argue just even worldwide, this Mm. is one of the stories that humans have told, despite its importance, it's super short. Like, you can basically tell the whole thing in a couple of minutes. Which I will attempt to do. Hit it. All right. There are people who were born in a cave, and all that they see are images that are sort of projected onto the back wall of this cave. Now... They don't see each other. They're chained in such a way that they can't move their head. They can't stand up. And uh, we have to just negate how it is that they go to the washroom or eat or any of those kinds of things. But the idea being that there are people who are chained in such a way in a cave where they can only see straight ahead, which for them looks onto the back of the cave. There are shadows there that are projected from a fire that they these these prisoners don't see because it's behind them and in front of that fire there are people walking with different images like if you can almost imagine it like paper cutouts on sticks it's like a puppet show you know like a like a shadow theater that's what i'm thinking of it's like the, the what they're seeing is the shadow theater on the back of the wall so if i'm in this cave in this story i'm sitting down i'm chained i've got like blinders on so i can't look to the left or right i'm just looking at this cave wall and on the cave wall are flickering shadows of like 
birds and frogs and and dogs and things like that. Exactly. And to me, I'm like, this is reality. That's what's real. Exactly. What I don't realize is behind me that I can't see is a fire, and that's where the light is coming from that's reflecting off the cave wall. And also behind me, but in front of the fire, are people walking around with little like puppets on sticks. Yeah. And that's making the shadows. Exactly. And you get this sort of shadow play theater thing. I don't know if any listeners have kids and you... You know, you make like little images with the nightlight and it's projected onto the wall and you can make like a dog or a crocodile or a bunny rabbit or whatever. I can do the rabbit. Okay. I can do a dog. It's like this. Works really well. Anyway. <laughs> That's, I mean, what's better for podcasting right? than Lee and I doing hand signs. Doing hand signs and shadow puppets? <laughs> now, Plato asks, what would happen if we sent down somebody from the outside to unshackle one of these poor prisoners and what what we'll do with them is we'll unshackle them and we'll bring them out of the cave so plato says that uh, as nathan noted the shadows on the wall constitute these prisoners entire reality and their entire experience of reality it's what they think the world is and yeah it's all the world is it's just these flickering shadows exactly now now this this stranger comes down and unshackles one of the prisoners and gets them eventually to turn around and sort of for the first time take in the 360 degree view of where they're actually at. And they discover that, as Nathan said, there is a fire there. Now, this is going to be the first time somebody has an experience of something bright like this, like a fire. And it's useful to know for anybody who hasn't, you know, geeked out on Plato, that for Plato, the image of light is knowledge and truth. And so as... You're, in, you're enlightened. Exactly. You and so this functions also as a kind of um, a metaphor within the text that anytime there is light, we are getting close or closer to the truth. Yeah, the brighter the light is, the truer things are getting. Exactly. So the, the flickering shadows, pretty dim. Yeah. Fire, pretty bright. Especially for somebody who's never seen it, it's going to hurt your eyes. And, and Plato notes that, okay, the first moment of recognition here is going to be, oh, my world that I took for granted as being real turns out to be a pale imitation of something that's significantly more real, which is this fire and these people walking in front of the fire with, with, with poles and stuff on the end of the poles. And that's what's actually causing this projection, right? And so... Plato so, says, so I wasn't, li- as the guy in the cave, I wasn't living in the real world. I wasn't experiencing the real world. Now I see, oh, wait, the real world isn't the shadows. The real world's the fire and the people with puppets. Exactly. Gotcha. That's where, if I had written the story, I probably would have ended it there. But Plato's the like, end. hold on a second. You're not actually out yet. Let's take this guy right out. And so the the stranger takes the prisoner who is now unshackled, past the fire, past these people who are creating these false images for them, and actually out into the real world. Now the experience, Plato says, is that what appeared to be the really real, which was the fire and the the people with, with the sticks and the images, turns out to themselves actually be rather pale imitations. Like I'm imagining here somebody walking with the cutout of a bird on top of a stick. And that will produce a kind of a shadow of a bird on the back of the wall. Now you turn around, you see that it's actually the the bird on a stick that's producing this. You're like, aha, that's what's really real. But then you go out of the cave and you see for the first time real birds. And you see the actual sun. And you, you, you're now, you're in, at least in this metaphor, you're, or in the allegory, you're in the really real now. So from my perspective as the guy in the cave, first of all, I saw the fire. That was already pretty alarming because I realized that I was just looking at a bad copy of reality. But then I go out of the cave, I get dragged out of the cave, and the sun is so much brighter again than the fire. Yeah. And so now my eyes are burning and I can't see, and it's probably terrifying and scary, but it's also true. Exactly. And I think this, for Plato, this is as much an allegory of coming to learn about reality as it is also about out of the personal experience of this and the problems of teaching this. So I think Nathan's insistence on the unpleasant 
and painful experience of coming to recognize the real is a really important factor. And it's it's one that when us teachers sort of get together and, and talk over a glass of wine or something, we often talk about the struggles of getting our students to actually come with us out of the cave, turn around, look at stuff. So this is also why as professors we love the story of the cave exactly because we flatter ourselves right we are the strangers who release the that's prisoners right. we're the right? ones who go in and drag people out right. of the cave and we like to think that that's what we're doing now and then there's an addendum which is that per, the prisoner has now been released needs to go back into the cave to tell the others about it and of course it ends very badly the other people don't like the this kind of talk about a really real and well, they, that, they don't believe him they don't believe or him her. or her they think this is nonsense and they kill him yeah. And that and that's the part that almost none of the profs at our school ever mention. And right. I basically do my whole lecture just on that. Right. Because for Plato, this was also, he was talking about Socrates, mm-hmm. and which is, of co- which at least is what happened in real life to Socrates as he was executed by the city of Athens. Who was, of course, Plato's teacher. Right. Sorry. Yes. So this allegory, I think, encapsulates a lot of, in a very helpful and simple story, the underlying idea behind, I think, basically all of what we're talking about in this episode and the next is that maybe this isn't as much of a thought experiment as Plato suggested. Maybe this is actually really how the, you know, the situation that we're in. We are living in ignorance. What we take to be real is not. And there are, there are greater levels of reality each one being more real than the subsequent one. And then there is, you know, at the end, there is a really real out there, which if you experience it, it's completely overwhelming and much bigger and grander than the kind of mundane stuff that we take to be real. Now, this story is not only important, you know, just in general for humanity, but I would also argue this is a fundamental story for conspiracy theorists. Mm, Yeah, because that's a good point. Yeah, this, this is a conspiracy story. And this is something else that I, I don't see a lot of professors paying a lot of attention to, even people who know way more about it than I do. Mm. What's the deal with the people in the sticks? Because that seems to indicate the people in the cave are being deliberately tricked. Yeah. The people in the cave are having reality deliberately hidden from them. Yes. Well, now I don't know where I got this reference from. I didn't know we were going to go that deep into it. Now, having been disciplined before to not say more than three philosophers, but <laughs> I, I did read exactly that. That actually what this is in Plato's rendition, these are the ideologues in a culture. These are um, the people who tell us what reality actually is like. They are the influencers. Exactly. The influencers are the ones holding up the puppets on sticks being like, no, 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 this is reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you can see why the story has been able to survive in the zeitgeist for so long. It's got legs. It's got legs, and it also it, it can apply to pretty much any time period that you find yourself in. And uh, what's helpful is that, you know, we all, to some extent, believe we have a grasp of the really real. And so it's also a good put-down for us when we're thinking about other people. And it's like, oh, you suckers stuck in the cave Still, there. I'm you know. out here looking at birds yeah, and let, frogs. Let me come and, and, and liberate you and set you free. from. So I can see why it is appealing uh, to everybody in, in, in its way. But there are issues with it, I would say. And one of them is, how do we know that once you're out in the sun looking at birds and frogs... How do you know that isn't just another cave? How isn't? How do you know that isn't just another brighter cave? Now, to Plato, that's not what he means in the story. He wants that to be the truth, and you have arrived at the truth. Right. But us sort of pessimistic people are like, maybe it's just caves all the way down. Right. And I think this, uh, our colleague and friend Mark deserves a shout out here because uh, he's also um, a fellow teacher, and this is his question in his Uh, allegory of the cave lectures is how do you know you're really out of the cave this is actually a trope in a couple of science fiction movies or tv shows which take this as their premise that uh, you live in an illusory world and then just when you the audience think they've gotten out they're just still in in that world now i mean yeah look at something like inception yes are they living in a dream world they have sort of this 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 icon this totem that they use to tell whether they're in the real world or the fake world. And for the main character, it's this top. He spins the top. 
if it keeps spinning forever, he knows he's in a dream. If it topples over, he knows that he's awake. And of course, spoiler alert for this like 10-year-old film, <laughs> it ends with him spinning the top and the movie finishes before you know if that top is going to fall over or not. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. But if we take this question very seriously, like in the way that you posed it, like how do you know you're out of the cave? Maybe, and this is the part I want to focus on, maybe it's caves all the way down. If it is caves all the way down, then there is no outside. And then the whole story collapses because then there is no, the, you are already in the really real. It's just the really real is just, you know, a series of caves. And as as weird as this point is going to seem right now, I think this is going to be a recurring theme throughout this question of, are we living in the real world? If that other really real world is actually inaccessible to us, then maybe the answer is yes. We talked about the people, the puppets on sticks, those, those people who are deliberately tricking the people in a cave. And we said that from Plato's perspective, these are the ideologues. Right. These are the people who are trying to force like a certain view of reality on you. Well, if ideology is something that keeps us in the cave, if ideology, again, they're sort of like goggles that we wear that, that filters everything we see through that perspective, can we ever be without an ideology? Wow. I mean, this is what's so good about these thought experiments. It allows us to, to probe kind of the nature of our reality. I worry, though, that if we get delve into this now, it uh, is going to be six episodes before we get to the hologrammatic universe. What's your bumper sticker version of the answer to the question, can we ever be without any ideology? This, I'm stealing a line from uh, Slavoj Žižek on this point. You love Žižek. I kind of do. There's this iconic moment in the film The Matrix where there's the red pill and the blue pill. And so there's, you can stay in the illusory world or you can wake up to reality. And Zizek says, I want another pill. I want the pill that allows me to see the illusion in reality. Is this an answer? I, I don't know. I mean, it would be a very awkward bumper sticker. It's an awkward bumper sticker. So, okay, cut that out. The answer is no. You can't experience a world without ideology or without a kind of mental map. But again, is that what we're talking about? Because there is a... Oh, see, this is a mess. There is a false ideology, potentially, and a more true ideology. But, in the way that... Um, see, here's the thing about that red pill, blue pill thing and the cave. People always think when they when they change their perspective that they're getting to a place that's closer to the truth, but it's also entirely possible that somebody could be digging deeper yeah. and going even deeper into even more of a cave. Yes, that is true. Um, and thinking they were climbing out when actually they were digging down. Yep, yep, yep. And I mean, and how many times have we talked to somebody who is convinced that they've taken the red pill, but actually it's like, well, you're subterranean at this point, man. Right, right. And how do we know that we haven't done the same thing? I don't think we can. I mean, I think what we're getting into is the complexities of trying to figure out what it might even mean to be in a reality. And it's not a simple question. This is why we have all these traditions which are trying to grapple with this. But the thing is that Plato's allegory is self-evidently an allegory. It's in the title of this little piece and so he is suggesting reality is sort of like this or coming to learn about reality. Maybe it's an epistemic argument. Coming to learn about reality is like this process. But you actually have a tradition which says, no, no, this is, you are, this, you are, in the, you are living a completely illusory existence right now and you got to get out and there's a really real out there. And this is not about epistemology. This is about ontology. Yeah. Oh boy, we're really getting into some uh, some big words here. So yeah, so now we're moving from epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, to metaphysics, which is the study of existence, of what exists. So for example, asking a question like, can we know if we're in a dream? That's epistemology. That's about what we can know. To ask a question like, is the world a dream? That's a slightly different question, and that's metaphysics. Because you aren't asking a question about what can I know, you're asking a question about what is there. 
And so now we will move from epistemology to metaphysics. Mm. And we're also going to make another move. We're going to move forward in time. Okay. You know, like about 500 years. Okay. And we are also going to go from a situation where the people concealing reality from us, they're not our fellow humans feeding us lies. Mm. Now it's a supernatural being that's feeding us the ultimate lie. Okay. All right. So here's what's going on. So we're looking at like 150 AD right now. In Europe, in the earliest days of Christianity, we've talked about this before when we were talking about the occult, there were all sorts of competing versions of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, going all the way back to the very beginning, to a fight between Paul, who's of course a famous Christian guy, and Jesus's brother James. Mm -hmm. Like that's how far back this fight goes. Basically, as soon as Christianity starts, it already fractures into different interpretations. Yeah. What is it to be a Christian? Yeah. Right? The allegory that I enjoy, or the metaphor that I enjoy, is the early days of the ocean. Okay. Where you just have weird-looking shrimps and crazy squids and just everything's being tried by evolution. Right. So one of the early schools of Christianity was called Gnosticism. And their interpretation of some of the, like, canon, some of the canonical stories of the Old Testament, was wildly different from what people would recognize as Christianity. And I would argue to uh, a lot of modern Christians would seem also really offensive. So brace yourself for this explanation of Gnosticism. It's going to be very different from conventional Christianity. Just out of curiosity, what what does Gnostic or Gnosticism mean? Well, the Gnosis, it's, it's knowledge. I see. So these are the knowers? Yeah, these are the knowers. And, well, I mean, I'll, I'll get into the whole thing, but the the again, the bumper sticker version of this is, it isn't salvation that you seek. It's enlightenment that you seek. Okay. That is the way out. Not salvation because of sin, but enlightenment because of a state of ignorance. I see. So in that sense, the cave allegory also applies here in a sense. Yeah, the Gnostics were what you might call Neoplatonist. Ah. They were, they were sort of into this. There was a lot of crossover between Plato and the Gnostics. So let's look at the creation story of the Garden of Eden. Uh, you're familiar with that. Yeah. The sort of conventional Christian version. Yep. Give me the give me the key points. The, uh, there's the beginning of the universe is represented as a garden, or the beginning of humanity is represented as a garden. There are lots of animals, and there's God, and there is one human being, um, a man named Adam, and uh, kind of walks around and then eventually is lonely and gets a partner. So there Eve is created. And so now you have Adam and Eve, and it's a place of innocence, and you have to work, and you kind of lie around, and, you know, food falls from the trees, and lions and tigers are friendly. And then Eve is tempted by, there's two, there's two prohibitions in the Garden of Eden. You may not eat from the tree of knowledge and from another tree. The tree of life. The tree of life. She is tempted by a devil figure. Serpent. Yeah, to eat from the tree of knowledge, which will which uh, bestows knowledge upon her, and this angers the god, who then expels uh, both Adam and Eve out of this paradise and afflicts them with punishments. So Eve will have pain and difficulty bearing children. So all women will will now have pain, difficulty bearing children, and men are condemned to work for their food. Yeah, things don't just drop from the sky anymore. So that's that's sort of like your conventional yeah. uh, version of the of the origin story of Christianity that somebody might learn in like Bible school when they're yeah. when they're a little kid. So Gnosticism looks at the same story, mm-hmm. looks at it through different goggles, and comes up with a wildly different in- interpretation, and like I said, possibly a very offensive one, because in Gnosticism. Like, in Christianity, God creates the universe. Right. In Gnosticism, the world wasn't created by an all-knowing, all-powerful, benevolent deity, but by a flawed and possibly evil being named Yaldaboth, who is also known as the Demiurge or the Artisan. The Gnostics do have a god, but it's this, like, unknowable, intangible, supreme being that's both male and female, and it's, like, pure thought, and it can't be described, and it can't be understood. It is simply a state of perfection. But that didn't create the universe. 
What that god did was it created a number of divine lieutenants who were all coupled up with each other. And one of those lieutenants was named Sophia. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Sophia in Greek... As wisdom. Yeah, wisdom. But, ironically, Sophia doesn't live up to her name because she decides to create an offspring without her partner's help. She's like, uh -huh. I'm just going to use some parthenogenesis here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a thing all by myself. Okay. Without any help. And what she makes is this horrifying monstrosity, this abomination. It's been represented as having the head of a lion and the body of a snake. And this monster that she makes by accident is Yaldaboth, which is a name that likely means child of chaos, but there's obviously, there's always some disagreement about translations. Okay. So Sophia's like, oh man, I thought I was going to make this nice thing and I've made this horrifying abomination. So she wraps Yaldaboth up in a cloud and gives him a throne to sit on. So now he's just sitting on a throne in a cloud. So nobody can see him. Okay. Because she's embarrassed. She's horrified about this, this mistake that she's made. But because Yaldaboth is all wrapped up in this cloud, he can't see the rest of the heavenly world or any of the divine lieutenants. And he can't even see the supreme being. Okay. So this makes Yaldaboth come to the conclusion that he's the only being that exists and that he was the ultimate god and that there was no god before him. Okay. Because he can't see anything else. Right. And so then he starts creating, as he thinks a god should do, and he makes his own lieutenants, the archons. And these things are evil, demons, devils, however you want to describe them. These are monstrous things. Then, uh, once the, the sort of the heavenly host finds out what Yaldabaoth is up to, they're like, we've got to expel this guy. Like, mm -hmm. he is really causing some havoc. So they expel him from the heavenly world, but he takes some of that heavenly magic with him. Okay. He steals some of the heavenly magic and brings it with him and his devil archons. And so then he's like, I, as the true God, will now create the universe. Mm -hmm. And he creates humans and he creates this, this sort of flawed, messed up world. Now, Sophia is horrified by this and tricks Yeldaboth into breathing some of that heavenly magic that he's stolen into his new human creations. Okay. And so now the human creations have souls. Ah. Now this infuriates Yeldaboth. He becomes, because he's a very petty guy, he's a very jealous guy because he is so flawed and, okay. and broken. And so now he's mad. And he's mad at the humans. Ah. So now reread the Garden of Eden story from a Gnostic perspective. Okay. The humans aren't given this paradise to live in by a divine god. They're, they're trapped in this flawed existence of matter by Yaldaboth. And because he's jealous of his creations getting souls, he forbids them from eating the tree of... of and knowledge? Yeah, of, of life and knowledge. Okay. Because he doesn't want them to get knowledge. Because what are they going to understand if they eat from the tree of knowledge? Hmm. They're going to realize that he is not the true God. So that is to say, the Garden of Eden story is a kind of fake creation story that we have mistaken for the real God, but actually this was the Yelzeboth, the Yaldaboth. Yaldaboth. Uh, okay. So basically what the Gnostics are arguing is that the book of Genesis that we're familiar with was like written by Yaldaboth's PR guys. Right. The basics of the story are all there, mm. but this idea that it was a paradise and that the humans sort of betrayed Yaldaboth, the, the humans betrayed God and were thrown out of the garden, the Gnostics are like, no, 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 they were trapped in the garden. They were trapped in a state of ignorance I see. of their true heavenly nature. Ah, uh, and is the eating of the apple the breathing of the divine light that Sophia tricks Yaldaboth to do? Is, is that sort of it's, it's It's sort of a mirror of that. Okay. Because the serpent is sent by, not the devil in this version, Ah. Uh but by Sophia. Uh-huh. Because Sophia's like, oh, I have really like made some mistakes here. i got to fix this. Right. So the serpent is sent down to free the humans from the enforced ignorance of Yaldaboth, the ignorance that they are in a flawed and broken illusion world created by a flawed and broken creator. So in this case, Satan is actually the agent of God. Yeah. So you can see why... To early Christians, people were like, oh, these Gnostics are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are they got the really... wrong end of the stick here. Yeah. And why they were accused of all sorts of things, including Satanism. Right, right. Because they were making the argument that the God of the Old Testament was this Yaldaboth monstrosity. So this world, then, that Yaldaboth creates, 
it's not it, help me understand the, the the notion of reality here because i'm still tempted to be like well okay but he created this world so this is what we've got yeah he created this world but it isn't our true form to the gnostics i see we are trapped in it we're trapped in these meat puppets i see so because, I'm, so so then there is a really real beyond this yeah that heavenly realm where sophia is from and I where see, that original god is from and the heavenly lieutenants and that's the, still there and we have a part of that in us but it's concealed from us through all of these layers of fleshy garbage and the way to get there is through gnosis through it's, knowledge it's through is through learning wisdom yeah wisdom okay. exactly that's why it's not faith because, I mean, to the Gnostics, what, are you going to have faith in Yaldabaoth? That's exactly what he wants. Right. Because that keeps you ignorant. Right, that keeps right, you right. unaware of the true nature of this lousy place. Right. Which is this broken, awful place that was made by this broken, awful being. And so then you go through, like, all of Genesis and you see the same pattern by the Gnostics. They'll say something like, okay, well, look at the story of Abraham. Okay. In the traditional version... God tells Abraham to kill his son to demonstrate faith. Yes. And then just as he's about to kill his son, an angel comes down. It's like, no, 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 it's fine. You don't have to do it. Right. To the Gnostics, that was Yaldabaoth demanding the murder of his son. Right. And Sophia sends the angel. It's like, wait, no, no don't do it. Okay. Noah and the flood. Yaldabaoth becomes so frustrated with this broken world that he's like, I'm going to drown it. I'm going right. to drown everybody. Yeah. And so Yaldabaoth sends the flood, and then Sophia goes to Noah and is like, oh, maybe build some kind of a ship and put some animals right, in it. Right, right, okay. To try to protect the humans so that they can eventually get to the state of Gnosis. Right, okay. And then, of course, who is the ultimate person in, from the Gnostics' perspective who comes down to deliver us from ignorance is... Is it Jesus? It's Jesus. Okay. Jesus comes down as this ultimate agent of Sophia and Gnosis and knowledge mm. to spread the good news that, it, no, no, don't worry, this place, it's not even real. Right, okay. It's an illusion created by a monster. Okay. And so, wildly offensive. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sort of pushing this or any particular religious belief, but I do find it fascinating. And I went and I reread the book of Genesis yeah. through these lenses. Yeah. And it's a really interesting read. That's cool. But the, the fundamental notion here is that we live in an illusory world. Yeah, that and was created by... On this, purpose. On purpose. Right. By this Yaldabaoth, who was sort of created by accident. And so we are having to cope with the fact, like, why is this place the way it is? Right. Why is there so much loss in it? Why is there so much struggle in it? In the original story, it's like you, you ate from the tree of knowledge, and so now I'm going to it's, punish you. It's with, your fault. So it's your fault. It's your fault. It sucks. Yeah, it's your fault. It sucks. Whereas from the Gnostic perspective, it's like, no, it's not your fault. It sucks. But what it you was designed to, this way. Yeah, it, it was designed to suck. <laughs> I like this philosophy. Because the, 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 the God who made it wasn't really a God. And what you have to do is sort of break through that realization and then you can see this world for what it is, which is this horrifying, awful, flawed creation, but that there is a way out. We do have this sort of, this spark of the divine in us. What's interesting to me is that obviously the Gnostics did not succeed. Mm -hmm. They were wiped out by, by what would eventually call the Catholic Church. Okay. But some Gnosticism does survive in some pretty weird places. In uh, not the, the Catholic Church, but the Eastern Orthodox Church. Oh, yeah? You see a little bit of Gnostic influence. And even this idea that like this, this world is like a temporary place and that will eventually go to heaven. And so the stuff that happens here doesn't matter so much. Hmm. That we shouldn't be distracted by, the, by earthly pleasures and sin and things like that. There's a little hint of Gnosticism to that. Yeah. This sort of, this suspicion with the body, the suspicion with the physical world. That is still a little Gnostic. The other thing is that I would argue that we've seen a lot of sort of cultish beliefs hmm. more recently right. adopt some of these same positions. Yeah. Think about a group that we're going to do a, an entire episode on in a few months, something like Heaven's Gate. Mm. Like they went so far as to like cut off don't spoil it. Right. They cut off some stuff <laughs> to prove 
that the fleshy world meant nothing to them. Yeah. And then eventually abandoned the fleshy world entirely to go to this more perfect place in the heavens. Well, and that does make me wonder if, while the Gnostics are really explicit about this world was designed by a kind of a hack to and 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 we're we're stuck in a, this this illusory world that's not the really real it does though make me think that while they're more explicit about it there does seem to be certainly within most streams of christianity the same sense that the afterlife is more real than this yep. that's where god is that's where eternity is like with plato that's where the forms live it's where perfection is it's exactly. where eternity yeah exactly it's where infinity is I kind of feel like you've set up a lovely bridge into a question now that arises. Let's let's take for granted that we are totally in the not real world. Whatever that might mean at the moment. It's a simulation, it's an evil god that's created it. How do we take any steps to re- get ourselves out of here, rectify it? Well, and, I know what the uh, leader of Heaven's Gate would say. We should yeah, do. well, maybe we shouldn't start with uh, that <laughs> his advice. But when you were talking about this this sort of bad god that created the world, it made me think of, and I know that this is, we're back to epistemology briefly. We're back to the, how do we know what's real? And there is a lovely analogy or wait is it it's a thought experiment actually it's a thought experiment by another uh european philosopher of the early modern tradition what, what he's 1500s isn't he yeah 1596 he's born oh you have that date no glass 1596 rene descartes and he has a thought experiment that runs essentially along these gnostic lines right he says what if there were an evil demon and he has tricked us into believing that we're living in the real world. That we have bodies, that the world exists. Exactly. He tricks us about everything. So you talk to somebody, that person isn't there. Um, You walk from here to there, you haven't gone anywhere. You you bang your toe and you think you have a toe. You don't really have a toe. You don't have a toe. Nothing. Everything. And what Descartes is sort of musing at this point is the question that I just posed to you is, if this is the situation, if we cannot rely on anything as fundamentally true as a starting point, how do we do philosophy? How do we get to know wisdom? How do we get to know the truth? And he, well, actually, how does he solve this? Maybe I'll ask it as a question. How does he solve it? Like, if the if if there is an evil demon who is tricking us all the way down, everything is an illusion, how can we even begin to reason out of this? Yeah, we've accidentally, I think, got a really interesting thread in this episode now because we start off... No, no, with, we intended it. That's right. We intended to <laughs> have this really interesting thread in this episode because we start off with Plato, who has a thought experiment that, you know, says, oh, you know, it's sort of a metaphor that we're in this sort of flawed, broken world. And when the Gnostics come along and they say, it's no metaphor. Right. There is like really a guy who is, has made this place and is tricking us into thinking it's real. Yeah. And then we have Descartes who starts with that assumption. He's like, okay, what if that's the case? Yeah. Now the thing about Descartes that I find fascinating, and the reason I know he was born in 1596, we've spent a lot of time in the last few months around 1596 hmm. and on the on the, uh, the podcast and why is that the witches the witch hunts so descartes is born at a time when what did we decide like basically tens of thousands of people were being murdered for being witches right this is a dangerous time for ideas it's a very superstitious time what's fascinating about descartes is he decides he's going to have a project he is going to throw out any idea that he has that isn't based on reason and truth. Mm-hmm. But he realizes, but but his head is already full of ideas by this point in his life. So before he adds any new ideas and beliefs, he has to do a bit of an inventory, and anything that's not provable, he's got to toss out. Mm-hmm. He needs to use the idea of doubt as a kind of an, an epistemological weed eater. Mm-hmm. If I can doubt something, out it goes. Right. If it, It's like the, the thought version of Marie Kondo. Wait, nope, don't know it. She, it's because it's a pop culture reference. <laughs> okay. She has a TV show where she's, she goes through your house and is like, if th- something doesn't spark joy, you have to throw oh, it out of your house. Oh, right, right, okay. So Descartes like, go through every thought you have, and if you can doubt it, 
It's, throw it out. It's, it's got to go. And, if and, you doubt, throw it out. Oh, nice. Uh, that's a bumper sticker Descartes version. There but, we go. But this, again, is very radical. Like, he wants to say, yeah, you see that wall over there? You could doubt it. Like, yeah. if you were in a dream, then that wall would seem as real as any any really real wall. Yeah, that's, so, that's the problem, because it turns out that almost all of our ideas and beliefs can be doubted, because all of the information that comes to us through our senses can be doubted. Okay. Like, our senses can distort the truth. Right. We see illusions and things like that all the time. Uh, we could be dreaming. We right. could be hallucinating. This I could be plugged into a machine. You could be a brain in a vat. Exactly. And all of what we experienced as external reality could be nothing more than a massive illusion being pulled on us by some sort of all-powerful evil demon, like the kind that the Gnostics sort of postulated with Yaldabaoth. Right. So, 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 so we're stuck then where even, even my own consciousness has to be doubted. Yeah, well, I mean, think about all of the times where you have been late for school, you've slept in, or you've been late for work, you slept in, you get up, you get dressed, you run out the door, and then your alarm goes off again, and you realize, right. wait, no, I was I was sleeping. <laughs> the best is when that happens on, like, a day you don't have to go anywhere. Yeah. Right? You have that stress dream that you're, like, late for work, and then you wake up, realize you're in bed, and you can turn the alarm off and go back to sleep. I mean, I had this happen to me where I woke up because I really needed to use the washroom. Oh, yeah, no, you don't want that going wrong. No, because then you get up and you go into the washroom, and then at the last second you realize, wait, nope, still in bed. <laughs> and so then you're like, okay, this time I've got to actually get up. And so you actually get up and you go to the washroom, and then you wake up again, and you're like, still in bed. And at that point you think, oh, no. Right. Like, how, how, do do I, how do I know? You need a spinning top or something. Yeah, I need a spinning top because it's like I, I am trapped in here. Now, Descartes wasn't arguing that this was the case. Not mm. like the Gnostics. Gnostics were like, no, no, this is the case. There yeah. is an evil demon that's created a false world. He's not saying that there was, but he's saying that you couldn't know that there wasn't. It was possible. And if it's possible, that brings doubt in. But okay. he does have a solution. He does. I'm going to quote from Descartes first. Oh, okay. I shall then suppose, not that God who is supremely good and the fountain of truth, but some evil genius, not less powerful than deceitful, has employed his whole energies in deceiving me. I shall consider that the heavens, the earth, colors, figures, sound, and all other external things are not but the illusions and dreams of which this genius has availed himself in order to lay traps for my credulity. I shall consider myself as having no hands, no eyes, no flesh, no blood, nor any senses, yet falsely believing myself to possess all of these things. And he's right. It is, it is possible. Right. This is like totally brain in the vat kind of stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how modern this thought yeah, experiment is. It really is. I mean, you replace demon with... Uh, Computer program. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the Matrix, the holodeck, whatever, and bang, it's, it's a very modern worry. And at this point, Descartes in his... Like, he's gotten himself into some trouble here. Yeah. Because he's like, wait, I've convinced myself... I can't trust my senses because of hallucinations and illusions and dreams or the possibility of an evil demon tricking me. So if I want to only know things that are true, like where can I stand? I've like I, I've got no rock to stand on. Yeah, what's from the which Archimedean point, right? Exactly. Yeah. However, ah, here it comes. Here it comes. Here's his big move. Okay. Here comes Descartes' big move. Even if everything in the world is a lie or an illusion or a hallucination or a trick. Descartes argues that there's one thing that he is incapable of doubting. Right. Like, do I have a hand? I could doubt that. In fact, people who are unfortunate enough to lose limbs will sometimes still feel that limb. It'll yeah, still be itchy. Phantom limbs. Yeah. So the idea that I have a hand, that seems like the most real thing in the world to me. Hmm. But it also feels that way to someone who has lost their hand. Mm -hmm. So I can, I, I can doubt even something like that I have a hand. I can doubt that I'm in the bunker right now yep. because I have dreamt that I've been in the bunker. So this is scary stuff. This is like some truly scary stuff. But what's the one thing that I can't doubt? Do we get a drum roll or something? You can't doubt that you're doubting. Well... Because what are you doing? If you doubt that you're doubting, what are you doing? You're doubting. Right. You can't doubt doubt without doubt. Right. 
I can't be like, I don't think I'm doubting right now because like, no, but I am doubting because I'm doubting that I'm doubting. And if I'm doubting that I'm doubting, then I'm doubting. Right. Which means you can't doubt it. So what, what this means is that there is a kind of loop where now you have hit rock bottom. Yeah. Like you can't go any further down than this, but there is still something there, which is a doubter, yeah. which means that you can already build up and say there is some kind of subject. There's some kind of consciousness that is aware of itself doing something. And here we've already now gotten into quite a robust set of ideas and terms that follow naturally from the fact that we can't doubt the fact that we are doubting. Yeah. Or to put it in like five cent words, what is the thing that's doubting? So if we can't doubt doubt, then we know that doubt exists. What's the thing that's doubting? My mind. Right. And so there is a mind. Even if I'm being tricked, even if it's an illusion, even if it's an evil demon, even if it's a hallucination, my mind is still experiencing it. Well, there's got to be something on the receiving end of the trickery. Yeah. Right? Yeah, something's got to be, like, somebody has to be tricked. Even if I don't have a body, I'm being tricked into having, thinking that I have a body. My mind still have, has to exist in order to be tricked to think I have a body. Okay. And I think this is relevant for us in this conversation because it does provide the glimmer of hope that even if a Gnostic version of reality were true, there that doesn't condemn us into being stuck there, potentially. I mean, who knows if this actually uh, works out. But there is then a way out, and that way would be through the pursuit of reason. Yeah, through thinking. And knowledge. Yeah. And so Wisdom. it does kind of go back to... It goes back to the Gnostics. It goes back to the Gnostics. Are we, co are we converting ourselves? Uh, <laughs> maybe. And so... Descartes, this is, of course, where he comes up with the famous line, cogito ergo sum, right. or... I doubt, therefore, I am. Yeah. Or normally the way that people phrase it is, I think, therefore, I am. And this right. is like one of those few philosophical arguments that's famous enough that it's like entered into the world of pop culture. Right. You can get that on a t-shirt. Yeah. And that's what it means. I think, therefore, I am. It means that if you are thinking right now, as you listen to this podcast, listeners... You must proof? be existing. Yes, you exist. You exist because you're experiencing this. I we might not exist. It. This voice might be just another one of Yaldabaoth's tricks, or it could be a puppet on a wall, or it could be the, you know, the manipulation of some evil, evil genius. Yep. But you, but you, dear listener, you exist. You exist, and we proved it. 